welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. And uh, very excited to introduce our speaker today, uh, Bill Kuzak. Most of you will know very well because he is the pastor of this uh, congregation and a dear friend, and I think this is the fourth in our Living Faith series as we travel through Hebrews chapter 11 and 12, looking at some of the great heroes of faith and seeing how we can live with greater faith and how we can learn from them. And I'm particularly excited about today because we're going to be hearing, as you will discover, from one of the more colorful characters in the Bible. So let's put our hands together and welcome Bill Kuzak. It's all good. Just um, before we start, I wouldn't normally say this at the beginning, but if you have a child who's old enough to understand some of what I'm going to say, you just need to be aware, but because of the nature of the character that the person that we are talking about, we're going to be talking about things that um, I'm happy for my... Oh, he's gone to the loo, but... Um, for, for, for my uh, 11-year-old to hear about, because we've talked about it, but we're, we're going to be talking about a sex worker. So uh, if you have a child and you would rather they didn't hear about that, I just want to give you the opportunity now just to uh, make sure that they're somewhere where uh, that they might enjoy the next 25 minutes more. So just as we're doing that, I'm going to pray and we'll start. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that because of the cross, we are new creation. We are in you. And as we've been singing, you say who we are. Amen. One more very quick thing. Welcome to, I saw David James. I didn't see Joy, but I don't know if she's here as well. But welcome. Where are you, David? David, Joy, great to see you there. Mission family, serving God as part of us in East London. We're thrilled that you're here. Thank you so much. Why don't we give them a quick round of applause? We're really glad that you're with us. So good to see you. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit of Hebrews to you, and we'll take it from there. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed by, uh, with those who were disobedient. So most of you know that I was a teacher, and I've shared some of my teaching stories with you before. I've never told you about, I'm I'm not going to say his name, and I'm not going to do the thing that I did last time, which is let's say his name was Tom and his name actually was Tom. (laughs) I'm not going to do that this time. Let's say his name was, let's call him Tom again. His name wasn't Tom, and (laughs) this is easier, I'll remember that. So... 
If you saw at the start of your day that you were teaching the class that Tom was in, your heart sank quite a lot. Your heart sank because you knew that the likelihood was that he was going to disrupt your class. Not just a little bit, but he was going to disrupt it a lot. He was also quite funny and very quick, which when you're trying to work out how to manage 29 other children, in a, young people in a room, and you've got William holding court. <laughs> Let's call him Tom. When you've got Tom <laughs> holding court and being quite funny but being incredibly disruptive, it's, it's very difficult. And he did have this reputation around school so that Tom, the other, the other Tom I told you about, <laughs> when he walked into a room, he was in trouble. When this Tom, I think we can say also known as William, walked into the room. Well, he was in trouble before. He was in trouble in the corridor. If something happened, it was his fault. Before anyone worked out whose fault it actually was, it was his fault. I remember this one time. Uh, he was being so difficult and disruptive to one of my, in one of my friend's lessons. So my friend said, right, you need to wait outside for a senior member of staff. And he said, I'm not going. And so the teacher said, well, actually, no, you need to step outside. And he said, no. And there was this standoff. And if you've ever been a teacher, I know there are some teachers in the room. It's quite a difficult moment when you ask someone, like, he was a big lad. You ask him to leave, and they say, no, what do you do? So my friend went and he called the senior member of staff. And the senior member of staff said, right, Tom, out you come. No, I'm not going anywhere. We can do about it. Well, Tom, you need to step out of the room because you're being disruptive and there's a lesson that's trying to be taught here. You can't touch me. I'm not moving. So they called for another senior member of staff. You need to step out of the room. I'm not moving. And if you touch me, uh, I'll make a fuss. Eventually, they got the head teacher. He walked into the room and said, right, Everyone except Tom, stand up and leave the room. <laughs> and they relocated the whole room because Tom wouldn't leave. He was that kind of a character, and he carried this reputation with him everywhere he went. This reputation. We all know people, don't we, who have a reputation I'm not talking about a good reputation either. I'm talking about they did something once and it seems to have followed them everywhere they went, have been since. Maybe you're at a workplace and this work colleague did something somewhere else, but his reputation has traveled with him. And it's difficult for him to make an impression because we already know what we think about him because he is that because he did that. 
Or maybe you've done something. And maybe you've carried that with you. Maybe some people know about it. Maybe some people don't know about it. But you know about it. And you carry it. And it is this weight that goes with you everywhere you go. But I want to read the story of Rahab, the prostitute, the sex worker, to you and see what we can learn from her. She carried this reputation with her. Everybody knew it about her. So this is Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 to 24. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stacks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as, as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting with fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Cylon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage melt, uh, failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God of heaven. Now then, please swear by, to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them so that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell anyone what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return. Then go on your way. Now the men said to her, this oath you made, I swear, will not be binding to us unless... When, you, when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into the house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. 
As for those who are in this house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we are released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So Joshua has sent these two spies into the land to check it out. And they're particularly interested in Jericho. The thing that we need to understand about Jericho is that it is surrounded by wilderness. It's a thousand feet below sea level, and it is an, an oasis in otherwise a barren place. Because it was below sea level, it had the ability to, to dig wells and they had water. And it was actually known in Deuteronomy as the city of the palms. So they went into this city and they stayed with a prostitute, a sex worker, somebody who sold her body to men for sex, for money. And they stayed there for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first reason was it was between the two city walls. That in, uh, in cities in the ancient Near East at the time, they, they would have cities and they'd have concentric walls. And the reason why they did that is that if the enemy got through one wall, there was another wall they had to get through. And people lived in between the walls. What made it good for the spies was that um, because she lived between the city walls, it meant that um, easy in, easy out. If she lived on the city wall, they could escape quickly if they needed to. The other reason we suspect that they chose their home of a prostitute was because people were coming and going all the time. There was nothing unusual about strange men walking in and out of this home. But the ruler of Jericho hears that there are these spies. His sentinels have heard about these spies. And so they, the first person they go to and we don't know why they come to that view, but the first person that they go to is Rahab. It's interesting, the first person they go to is the person with the reputation, assuming the worst of her. But she's hidden the spies, and you know the rest of the story. She puts her life on the line because she has heard about the God of Israel, who has done these amazing things. And she trusts that if the God of Israel could deliver them from slavery, he could rescue her. And it's dependent on a ribbon, a scarlet, a blood-red scarlet ribbon on a window. Now, we've heard a story a bit like that before, haven't we? The Passover. It wasn't a red ribbon, it was blood-red. And we hear a story later in the New Testament where ultimately salvation becomes a blood that was shed. Not on a window, not on a doorpost, but on a cross. But let's be clear. The central person in this story is a prostitute. And I want us to just dwell on that for a little bit. Not for too long, but just for a little bit. We don't know why she has become a prostitute, but it's interesting. It talks about members of her family, but it doesn't talk about a spouse. So she has parents and she has family. Perhaps she has ended up, maybe she's a widow, we don't know, but she has ended up in this situation because it is our only means of financial support. 
But what we do know is this, is that men would visit her hour on hour, day by day, and her body would be broken and would be abused, and then they would throw money at her. And what she did became who she was. Just to give you an idea of what that is like. Uh, Some of our friends uh, work with ex-prostitutes. And one of the people that they told me about, she had been trafficked down from the north of England to London. She was attractive, 20 years old. Uh, She'd been promised a modelling job. She was put up at a a hotel in southwest London. And then she was raped by uh, uh, the people who were holding her. And she was dehumanised and she was broken. And then for the next 48 hours, she had rich men come and abuse her body and abuse her. And then at the end of those 48 hours because she was broken. They took her to the roof and they threw her off. And the only thing that saved her life was the red canopy of the restaurant at the bottom of the hotel. They said that for people like her, and I I don't mean that in a condescending way, but people like her, Their identity is so wrapped in shame that it's almost impossible for them to move on. And yet this is the woman who God chooses to use to give Jericho to the people of God. This woman who for whatever reason, allows men to do what we can only, what we don't want to imagine. God uses that person. She uses that that woman. And it's so tempting to look at her with all her baggage and with all the stuff. And of course, we know the end of the story. But it's so easy to look at her and think, how could God use somebody like that? Because what we see so often is their shame and we see their disgrace. I don't know about you, but I've been in situations where someone has suggested someone for something. And there's been a sharp intake of breath and a hmm. Because we know that they have a reputation. Now, I'm not talking about a reputation like Rahab's, but they have a reputation and they, have, they carry shame, or they carry this reputation because of it. They travel with reputations that they haven't been able to shake. It's not just something that someone did, it's become the defining thing in their life. And what we do so often is we recall their shame. This is such a trivial example of something that I know many of us will have wrestled with in this room. But I remember when I went back um, to my junior school, and I I don't really like reunions, but um, I went to this reunion, 
And there was a guy there, and I just knew, I just knew he was going to bring up this story. I, I, you know, I armoured myself beforehand, thinking he's going to tell this story of when I did this thing. And, and he did, in front of a table full of people. And everyone laughed, and you know, I tried to laugh. But I felt humiliated all over again. I, I felt like I'd been taken back in that moment to that moment all over again. And it all brought it all back to the surface. It's just a trivial example. It was something really stupid. It was something stupid. But it's amazing, isn't it, how shame travels with people. And what we often do with shame, and I've been uh, reading Brené Brown. If you haven't read Brave in the Wilderness, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. But she talks a lot about shame. And it was so interesting reading what she wrote because she said that when we shame someone, essentially what we do is we dehumanize them. They don't become a person, they become a thing. They become what they did. In Rahab's case, she was a prostitute. But uh, in our case, it may be something else. Maybe we, um, I don't know, told a lie and it got out of hand and that's kind of traveled with us and people always reference that about us. And what we do in moments like that, when we talk about other people, is we dehumanize them. Something happens in our neurobiology that's really interesting. We are hardwired to protect people and to care for people. So what we often do, and it's so prevalent in our culture now, which is why it's so important that we start a conversation here, is we are in a culture now that is consistently and constantly dehumanizing people. Because when you dehumanize people, you can treat them and you can talk about them in a way that you never would if they were an actual human being, an actual person with an actual story, with something actually going on in their life. They just become this thing. Let's say they become the immigrant. Or they become the liar, or they become whatever it is. And we start on this road where people become dehumanized. And what happens, like, let's just be honest, this happens in church. I love to say that it doesn't, but sometimes it does. We, de- we can often, oh, you know, oh, I'm not so sure about that person. They, you know, this. And the shame is brought right back all over again. And what happens is we move from, um, we move from guilt. And guilt is a right response. If you've done something wrong uh, and you feel guilty, that's good. But what happens is people move from that to shame, which isn't I did something wrong, it is I am something wrong. I am this thing. I am the prostitute. I am the liar. I am the lazy person. I am fat. I am ugly. And we do it all the time to other people. And because of that, we sometimes find it difficult to believe that God could use somebody like that. Like that. And of course, what we do... It's interesting, just as a side note, because Rahab, and I'll talk about this more in a minute, because Rahab trusted God, and she put the scarlet ribbon on her window, she eventually ended up marrying a guy called Salmon, and she became the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. This prostitute. Who would have imagined that you turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, and there is this woman, 
fully redeemed because of her faith that the God who rescued the people from slavery had something better for her. But of course, what we do for others, we do for ourselves. We carry shame so often. We've either put it on ourselves or someone has labeled us something and it's stuck. Nikki's talked about it before, but she came back from her first term at university and her, well, a member of her family said to her in passing, you put on some weight. Shame. Feelings of self-loathing that form an identity. I am fat. Seven years of an eating disorder because of a throwaway comment and owning something that was a lie. When we carry shame, it can often become part of our identity. And I'm not even just talking about things that are sinful. Like I said, it could be anything. You know in, in the dark, hidden places of your own hearts, like I do, those things that we hide because we are ashamed, because we carry them, and they become a part of who we are, although they shouldn't. But in those moments, it's so important that we remember God sees us differently. We did a whole series on this, the In Christ series. If you haven't listened to it, I really want to encourage you to listen to that series. Talking about the difference. Because we are in Christ, the difference that that makes. If you are in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, You are a new creation. The old, all of the old has gone and the new has come. The problem is we find it so easy to step back into the old and then discount ourselves. God couldn't use me, I'm this, or God couldn't use me, I did that. And that is where the story of Rahab, along with a lot of the other characters, there's a real cast of characters in that list. If God could use them, he can use us. God says that you are his beloved in 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, 1 verse 4. In Galatians 4 verse 7, he says that you are his child, that he loves you. In Jeremiah 31 3, he promises that he loves you with an everlasting love. We need to get those things into us. And as we do, the shame starts to dissipate. So how do we move on? It feels like it's been quite a heavy talk so far. How do we move on? How do we move on? Well, I think the first thing is, let's take ownership of what we say to other people. Next time you're talking to someone and you're tempted to say, you're a... Talk about the behavior, not the person. Not you're a liar, but you tell lies. Trivial example. Think about when you talk to your children, if you have kids. How often do we use you're a when we're, when we're frustrated with them? Or you're this. I'm trying as hard as I can with my kids. The only time I'm trying to say you're a is when it's something positive, when it's something life-giving, when it's something that is going to be transformative for them. There's incredible power in that. Paul encourages us 
in Colossians 4 verse 6. Let your conversation always be full of grace. So that's the first thing. Let your conversation be seasoned with grace. Secondly, name the shame. This is the hard, this is the difficult bit. But name the shame. So often we don't name the shame because we think if we talk about it, all, the, all shame is fear of exclusion. We feel shame and we don't share it because we think if I share this deep, dark secret that probably isn't that deep and isn't that dark quite often, that I will be excluded. So we bury it and we hide it. And what happens is a bit like a gremlin. It lives and it grows in the dark. But a bit like gremlins, you bring it to the light and it explodes. It dies. I, I was talking to somebody this week about something that I just felt ashamed about for years. I just carried this, and I, I, sort of, I knew I was talking about this on Sunday, so I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to tell this, but I'm going to, I'm going to practice what I, I'm about to preach. And so I, I, I sort of prompted, I said, oh, there's something I want to talk to you about. And this, this internal dialogue that went through my head was, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I'm going to say this. This, I just, this, this is the worst thing ever. This person, you know, they're going to think terribly of me. And, and, and I sort of went through this process of just like this thing. And then I told them. And it wasn't, just so you know, it wasn't anything big or bad. It was just like an attitude that I struggle with about myself sometimes. And they looked at me and said, is that it? And what had happened is this thing in the darkness had just metastasized and grown in my head to this thing. And I started feeling shame about this thing. And, and once I said it, I was like, ooh. Yeah, that, that is it. And I felt that the hold that it had over me just dissipated. It just went. Because I'd named the shame, I'd brought it to the light. Now, with small things, that is easy. I recognize with other things, that can be incredibly difficult. But these things only have as much power over us as we allow them to. And they thrive in the dark. These things thrive in the dark and they die in the light. So name the shame. Next thing, remember Rahab. Remember Rahab. The woman who dared to believe that the God who rescued the people of God from slavery could rescue her. And look forward and think about Jesus. We see the God of the Israelites who, because of blood on a doorpost, rescues, begins a rescue. We think of Rahab because of a red ribbon on a window frame, rescues. And we think about Jesus who, because of blood on a cross, rescues us. We don't need to carry shame anymore because on the cross he became shame. Everything that we've ever done, everything that we will ever do, everything that we ever feel ashamed about, he has already owned. And he died. And when he died, they died with him. The power of those things died with him. And when he rose, he left them in the grave. We do not need to live in shame anymore. We need to dare to believe that the God who rescued the people of God, the God who rescued Rahab, 
can rescue us, can save us. Why don't we stand? Uh, I don't know where the band are, but if they could come back and join me, that'd be great. Thanks, Joel. I just want you to close your eyes if that's okay, just for a minute. I recognize that uh, that was pretty full on. But I think sometimes we have to talk about the difficult things. We have to talk about the painful things. Because if we can't be us and be the real us, be the messed up us in church, we've got no, no one has any, there's no hope. But if we dare to believe that God means when he says, when he says that he's loved us with an everlasting love, if we dare to believe that he says that as far as the east is from the west, so he's separated our sin and our shame and our guilt from us, that he means it. If we dare to believe that the God who rescued the people of God from slavery and rescued Rahab from slavery can rescue us from our shame and from our guilt. Now, some people, many people in here probably don't feel any sense of shame about anything at all. And if that's you, in this moment, thank God. For the rest of us, this is a moment where we can begin the process or continue the process of being set free. And there's a couple of different responses. Now, it may be that you're here and you recognize that you've been part of spreading shame or perpetuating shame in someone else's life. And if that's you, with all the love I can muster for you, you need to know that you need to repent and that you're forgiven. And you need to decide to speak grace instead. It may be that you're here and you have written other people off because of the reputation that they carry. Today, your response is to say, I am going to ask God to help me see people the way that he does. Because when he sees people, he doesn't see any of that. He sees the version of them that he longs for them to become. Or you may be here and you may be carrying shame. And if you are, we would, we would count it a privilege to just stand with you and to pray with you and for you. Remembering that shame isn't just about things that we have done. It is, shame can be about, like Nikki, the lies the unkind things that people have said to us that have taken on a life of their own in our hearts. So what I'm going to ask you to do, and the reason I'm not going to get you to come to forward is because if you're wrestling with shame, the last thing you want to do is be identified as someone wrestling with shame. So if you respond to any of those things, I'm going to ask you to put your hand up now. Thank you. For some people, this is going to be the hardest 15, 20 seconds.
this is going to be the one time when I was going to ask you to be brave and you've got your hand in the air and I'm going to ask everyone else in a second to open their eyes so they will see your hand in the air. They don't know if you're responding to the first, second or third thing but they would count it a privilege to pray with you and for you. So keep your hands nice and high if that's okay. Okay, everyone else, I want you to look around. If you see someone with their, your hand, if they their hand up, introduce yourself to them if you don't know them. Tell them you'd love to pray for them. Tell them you think they're awesome even though you've only just met. Remind them that God thinks they're awesome. Ask if you can put a hand on their shoulder and pray for them. And we're going to pray. And those of us who haven't responded, that's... That's, that's great. We're going to worship together just as we bring uh, this into land. And we're gonna, some of us in a minute, Pete, I'm going to hand over to Pete and we'll pray for Deb's Wybrew as well.